Hi there, I'm Logan Medish, your host, and today's guest on the show has what I think is the coolest job title in the museum world. Hope you enjoy. My guest today on the show is Jonathan Ferguson. He is the Keeper of Firearms and Artillery at the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds. His research interests include the use and effect of firearms and their depiction in popular culture. He has co-curated the Make Believe exhibit in 2019 and is curating the forthcoming Firefight Second World War display at the Leeds Museum. His publications include the book Mauser Broomhandle Pistol in 2017 and a contribution to The Right to Bear Arms, Historical Perspectives, and the Debate on the Second Amendment in 2018. He's also the author of the forthcoming book Thornycroft to SA-80, British Bullpup Firearms, 1901 to 2020. And he's also a bit of a TV star, having made several media appearances, including on the History Channel's Sean Bean on Waterloo and Channel 5's Inside the Tower of London. With that remarkable resume out of the way, Jonathan, welcome to High Caliber History. Hi, Logan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. The honor is all mine. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Now, the first thing I want to address, uh, in, in a previous professional life of mine, I had the job title of firearms specialist, which I thought was a pretty darn cool job title. Uh, and a lot of other people seem to think so too. Uh, I, I would actually have people ask me for a business card just because it said firearms specialist on it, uh, which was pretty neat. And I really did believe that it was probably the coolest job title out there in the firearms industry. That is until I met you. Your job title, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, is Keeper of Arms and Artillery, which is hands down the coolest job title of all time. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's far more metal than I deserve. What exactly does the Keeper of Arms and Artillery do? There is a, it's not a funny story, but there is a story behind the Keeper title because when I started at the Royal Armouries a decade ago now, um, we, that system had gone away. So at one time we were part of the civil service working for the government and you had a whole hierarchy, almost like ranks, you know, um, from curatorial assistant, up through assistant curator, curator, senior curator, principal curator, and then you had keeper, and this was across the National Museum, so the British Museum, um, which which still operates um, part of the system, I believe, the National Museums of uh, Scotland also do, but there, a keeper is ahead of a whole department, so, you know, a dozen plus uh, people, lots of management responsibility. In 2016, we had a restructure and they decided to um, merge some of the disciplines at effectively a department level, but we're a lot smaller scale than, um, say, the British Museum would be. So I'm a keeper, but I'm in charge of five people, curators and an assistant curator. So really what you probably call a team almost anywhere else is um, we are calling a department. And But you know what? I'm quite happy with that because I still want to be a curator. So <laughs> I don't want to be a um, management guy uh, never getting to do the stuff. So it, it suits me. And as you say, it does sound cool as well. It does. It does. It sounds very cool. Uh, you know, when I had my former title, people would say, well, what does a firearms specialist do? And I would jokingly tell them, I said, I, I'm basically a curator, but they won't call me that so that they can pay me less. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of have the opposite 
um, situation <laughs> that they're throwing um, or, or promoting me effectively. But uh, me being me, I was quite happy being a curator, uh, just doing what I did. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I actually resisted it uh, at first. But for, to be to be quite honest, it's um, a really nice mixture of having a little bit of influence because a curator in a modern museum doesn't necessarily have any influence um, and still getting to do research exhibitions, still doing some inquiries, as, as you know, um, you and I have spoken about um, a couple. Uh, so I, I do everything a curator does, but I also have a, a management role and a sort of supposedly a, st a strategic role as well. But there are a lot of um, cooks involved in that particular stew. Gotcha. Now, I also know that before you came to the Royal Armouries, you worked at a couple other museums that also had some firearms and artillery pieces in them. And I'm curious to know, uh, you know, which came first? Was it your interest in museums or was it your interest in firearms uh, or did they kind of uh, arise as a joint thing? I think I can legitimately say it was the firearms. Um he, primarily because um, my dad had an interest. I mean, he hadn't pursued it beyond this being the UK. He hadn't pursued it beyond sort of air guns and military history and, you know, dabbling. Um, he hadn't got into target grouping or anything like that. So it was very much from a, I guess, a his, an historical perspective that, that I picked up that interest, among others, you know, um, military aircraft, uh, armored vehicles, all the stuff that young boys like yeah, so and then but then inter more general interest in history and archaeology uh, followed within probably a few years, and I guess after a few years I kind of gave up before I even started on getting any kind of job related to firearms. So I, and I went down a slightly parallel career path, never imagining, never dreaming that um, I would end up at any of the places <laughs> that I ended up, at uh, least of all doing. Something. Okay. Now, you mentioned you had kind of given up on having anything to, to do with firearms. And, you know, was that more early on uh, or was that because uh, given the laws and things over there that you just found it more difficult to do? Yeah, it's an interesting case study in a way, I suppose. I and mean, we're talking here about very, very young. You know, I was I was flicking through my dad's uh, military history and, and firearm books when I was like six or seven or something. So... Um, at that point, career was, you know, not in my mind. <laughs> um, by the time it was, I'd kind of gone down the archaeology, paleontology, geology, uh, parallel interest, because uh, it seemed like, although that seemed hopeless as well. <laughs> um, at least there were jobs, potentially, you know, one day, maybe. Um, <laughs> so, so really, it was to do with shooting and collecting and enthusiast scene that, that does does exist in the in the country, but having you know knowing no one that was involved other than my grandfather, who actually had a, a really nice collection, prim primarily of uh, black powder, uh, muzzle loading arms. Uh, but at that, age, I had no concept of of what he had, and it's I, I don't know that I wasn't allowed in there, but I certainly wasn't invited in there. And by the sadly, by the time I was really old enough to take an interest, he died. So that opportunity kind of went by the by um the the only the only way i potentially would have gotten into i guess shooting sports um so there's as you know there are plenty of people who study the history and and, and even the, the contemporary side of firearms without ever 
getting into the sporting side, uh, shoot, uh, target wall hunting. But you know, the, the the possibility is definitely here on the on the hunting side, even more so. My, my grandfather was quite uh, had had some money, um, and he was he enjoyed his rough shooting uh, rabbits and, and things like that, and uh, clays and birds as well, I believe. So, but the problem was I didn't really have an interest down that avenue. For me, it was more about people and guns and the history of it and that side. So, didn't seem like there was much of a of a path. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to get into this stuff when I get older, one way or another. Sure, but it won't be my career, won't be my vocation. But um, it ended up being that, which is great. Yeah, you know, you mentioned getting into it through your grandfather. And I, I think that's a, a common thing for a lot of people. Um, my grandfather was and, and still is uh, my, my biggest gun buddy, if you will. And, you know, growing up, he was the one who introduced me to firearms. And uh, it was really great because he was uh, he had a lot of different stuff in the safe and he was a three gun competition shooter. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was really cool. Um, and he had a lot of stuff in the safe. And, uh, you know, I was welcome to check it all out. Uh, under his safe observation, of course, but but the big catch was that if I wanted to check it out, I had to clean it, uh, which which was a great way to get to know all of the guns. But you know, looking back on it now, twenty some years later, uh, in addition to a good way to get to know the guns, it was also uh, a really good way for him to get someone else to clean the guns without having to do it. And you know, if if you can ever have the opportunity to have someone else clean the guns, that's that's a good opportunity to take. Yeah, I, I mean, I. I really, I regret missing out because I I didn't really connect with with him. I wasn't, you know, I missed that opportunity, and that was partly the distance, I guess, but also, um, as I say, just not. That's not quite where my interests lie. I mean, I think he had stuff that I would have found fascinating, and we just sadly we didn't get to connect before he he passed away. So it's sad, but I think look back and. Um, realized that we had that shared interest and he he did give me in his will uh i was meant to be one but due, due to um lack of family interest elsewhere i inherited three little percussion like vest pocket or handbag pistols which uh, the intent was that that myself and my two cousins might start our own collections uh which is really cool but um unfortunately once you're spoiled by the royal armory's collection there's really not that much <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate to that. You know, uh, I, I have spent some time around some amazing firearm collections uh, in museums uh, and with private collectors, and you, you almost get jaded by seeing some of the most remarkable, rare, collectible pieces. And it gets to a point where, you know, anything you would come across at, at the local gun show uh, no longer really has the appeal uh, that it could, would, or should, given to being spoiled by the other stuff, and the, and the stuff you might want for yourself uh, on a, on a curator's salary. Yeah, you you probably aren't getting that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that is all too true. Uh, I think pretty much any museum professional will tell you that uh, they got into it for for the love of being in a museum, not because they thought they were ever going to get rich doing it. So. Now you had mentioned that you know you were interested in firearms when you were younger, but you know then didn't think it was really going to be much of a career choice, and you know thankfully it it changed and it has become uh, a wonderful career for you. 
but I'm curious to know, you know, what was what was a misconception that you had about the field that you found to be totally untrue once you got into it? You know, it was a wow, I was not expecting that at all. I was totally wrong. Uh, you know, whether, whether it be a, a positive or, or a negative, what, what was a misconception? Um, well, I guess the time I'd kind of gone come full circle and you know, done my museum training and done archaeology and thought I'd probably end up curating teapots or something. Um, and seriously, I could have done uh, <laughs> pivoting back around to one of my kind of core interests uh, and guns were, were right up there. <laughs> Obviously, I had the the thought that, well, you know, the profession is is quite well. You know, the, museums are politicised, as you know, and um, it, it, my my perception was perhaps that firearms are deprecated, and that's part, partly why I suspected there wouldn't be a job. You know, I, when I, when I was at Edinburgh Castle, I was trying to specialise in edge weapons because I'm also interested in edge weapons, um, but also because I thought, well, they're just firstly there aren't many posts and it's kind of dead man's shoes and a lot of luck in all in all of these areas but also i thought well the the, the politics of firearms in europe and the uk specifically are such that you know the opportunities to do anything with this stuff are going to be surely very limited but you know as it turns out there are plenty of people um, but it's, you know it's more diverse a political spectrum than perhaps people realize from outside um and more than anything else, the museums have this, I like to think, I mean, you can't be truly neutral, of course, but it, it, we try, we seem to try and mostly succeed to have an objective position on things, you know, as, as the classic argument goes on, on the legal status of, of firearms, of, you know, guns, guns killing people versus people killing people, that kind of thing. It, for the most part, people in museums and museum visitors don't, in my experience anyway, and, and, the more I've done this, the more I'm kind of uh, firmed in that. They don't see the thing in the case and and put evil on it. You know, they don't they don't necessarily make that value judgment. Or if they do, and, and some do, then a museum is a safe <laughs> to, to use the uh, much abused phrase a safe space, uh, <laughs> literally a safe space for the stuff to maybe even to handle it to see it used to, to sort of think about it and if you do if you are anti or you just haven't thought about it which i suspect is the by far the biggest um factor in the uk i don't you know i don't know that people are necessarily this is what i'm getting at is then that it's not the thing itself it's not the firearm that, that most people are in have that reaction against now that doesn't mean to say we don't try to consider and cater for people that might have that i mean we we, we certainly have no remit to try and win people around on that score and it might even be difficult for us to, to do if, even if we did but we are able we're a sort of uh neutral ground i guess um so so people who already love guns will, will come to the museum and look for the guns um and we cater for them People who uh, probably are against them in principle, or at least the ownership of them, I'm sure they come and, and take something away as well. I mean, we we are very <laughs> when you and I have had these discussions, uh, as have others at um, things like the Cody uh, Firearms Symposium, where we we wrestle with these thorny issues. And I'm not trying to minimise 
any of that but certainly but my, my my preconception and those of people i speak to especially in the us is that museums in the uk and the and the british public are not going to be interested or they're going to be outright against and i don't think that's the case sorry that was a very long-winded answer <laughs> no well it's um, it's a very nuanced subject and yeah, I think it actually, well, it really plays well into the next thing I want to talk about, which is a misconception that I had um, pertaining to firearms and firearms laws and, and museums. Uh, you know, I had just assumed uh, that the firearms laws in England uh, would be incredibly restrictive as it pertains to museums, given to the way the laws are for people. Uh, and it actually, it wasn't until I met you and we were at the Cody Firearms Museum together at the Arsenals of History Symposium that I learned that there's such a thing as a museum firearms license over there, uh, which actually it makes things a lot easier for a museum to take possession of a firearm than it is here in the States. Uh, you know, if it's if it's not a government run entity over here, then you have to have you know, all of the same firearms licenses that you would have if you were a regular uh, firearms dealer, which can be kind of off-putting uh, to a museum over here. So I thought that was very interesting and that it's totally different and actually better in that regard over there. Mm, yeah, and just, just to add to your summary there of the, of the U.S. situation, um, what struck me the most having those discussions and presentations from other people was if... If a and, and let's let's sort of compare because this has happened many times. If a prohibited weapon, uh, uh, an assault, you know, I use the, the phrase advisedly, assault rifle, um, comes up, that, you know, let's say it's at the bottom of somebody's boating pond. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, happens a lot. There's a, a lot of boating accidents here in the states. <laughs> I gather. Um, uh, if that was in the UK, and let's say it was nicely uh, packed in grease or something, and wasn't. Uh, just rust, then we we could instantly take possession of that. And then it would just be down to our own, essentially, bureaucracy to uh, document and account for that. Well, I say that um, under the museum firearms license that you've mentioned, uh, effectively, our collections database, our catalogue is our register, if you like, equivalent of our firearms certificate or register if we were a dealer, uh, which we also are, by the way. Um, yeah, so so we we'd be able to just take possession of that, rescue it, um, and and go on from there. And as as I understand it, in the states, that would have to be turned over to the uh, federal authorities. Um, not that wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know, generally speaking, it's it's federal authorities, and yeah, with with machine guns and. You know, I I fielded a lot of phone calls when I worked at the National Firearms Museum. Someone would call up and say, you know, oh, I've got uh, granddad's, you know, you name it, machine gun is M3 grease gun that he brought back from World War II. And, you know, it was, it was in his footlocker in the attic and we want to donate it to the museum. Uh, what's what's our next step? And, you know, my first question would be, is it papered? You know, is it registered? Uh, do you have the tax stamp and everything with it? And you know, sometimes they'd be like, yeah, you know, he, he kept really good paperwork and we've got it. And, you know, if that's the case, then the museum can take possession of that, uh, you know, and it's it's all OK. 
But unfortunately, more often than not, the conversation when asking about registration, it's, well, well what's that? And then that's when things uh, go a little bit sideways uh, because I, I tell them, well, then, you know, we didn't have this conversation and you don't have that gun because what I like to call them is, you know, un, uh, unconvicted felons. And it was a shame because, you know, even though the National Firearms Museum has all of the applicable federal licenses, they couldn't take possession of one of these unregistered firearms because it is a privately run museum. It is not run by a government entity of any kind, state, local, or federal. And that's just one of the really weird things about it is that, you know, if if the museum had been federally run, uh, you know, like say, for instance, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, then then they could take that gun, not a problem. And, you know, the same thing goes for like the Springfield Armory National Historic Site run by the National Park Service in Springfield, Massachusetts. That's a federal entity, you know, so they could have taken it uh, or, or even a, a state run facility like the J.M. Davis Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma. And that reveals a situation, you know, where the the laws and regulations around it are are kind of arbitrary. You know, if you've got local, state, or federal government involved, you're good to go. But if it's private run, even if you have the licenses, then you know you're you're out of luck. And it it's really kind of arbitrary. Um, but I think as as you and I have both found, uh, laws, regardless of which side of the pond you're on, are, are a little bit arbitrary, uh, no matter what, when it comes to firearms and museums. Sure. Yeah. So on, on the face of it, the situation for us isn't much different. You know, we're equivalent to, well, in, in a narrow way, we're equivalent to something like the Smithsonian. We are a nationally funded um, you know, bit capital N National Museum. So you'd expect us to have a similar level of authority as, say, the Smithsonian or, um, uh, you know, a National Museum, government-funded museum in the States. But the interesting thing about the museum firearms license is, yes, that applies to us and makes life relatively a lot easier for us than it is for any private citizen or organisation. Um, but... It, it doesn't. It isn't just for the, for national museums. Uh, far from it. Any museum, any accredited museum, uh, under the Museums Association accreditation scheme, can apply for uh, a a museum firearms license from the government home office. And of course, it's completely discretionary uh, in theory. Just like all licensing in the UK, the government can tell you no, but um, they generally don't. And if it's a, a valid, you know, if it's a, an actual museum open to the public, you get your bit of paper and you can do everything that we can do uh, within a museum context. Now, obviously that that is open to some interpretation, but for us that includes, um, um, well, anything you might imagine that goes on in a museum. Interpretation wise, uh, you know, we're able to, to shoot some of, some of the collection as well. So yeah, so it, it's, it's, not quite carte blanche, but it's um, compared to, and of course, the big difference is, yeah, the museum, museums in the US have a, depending on their constitution, as it were, have uh, have it harder than museums in the UK do. Uh, the, on the on the civilian ownership side, it's obviously very different. And if you if you kind of think about it and look at the history of how our two countries developed, it makes perfect sense. 
Um, the, the US is all about individual rights to such things uh, enshrined in law. The UK, it is argued back and forth, but essentially uh, we don't. <laughs> and and, the, and because we don't because the government has maintained those rights for themselves. So, of course, the national museums and those museums that are given due permission to do so get to keep all the guns. It's, it's a different approach. I'm not going to say which is better, um, but it does. You know, the one is a consequence of the other. Our environment is, is relatively restrictive and always has been. So, most of the guns end up in government control. Uh, yours has been permissive, therefore, a lot of guns end up in civilian control, meaning that there's no special dispensation for museums. It it makes sense <laughs> in that way. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, and that's where it becomes a situation of, you know, is is it really better in the UK uh, than it is in the US? And it's one of those, well, short answer, yes, with an if, long answer, no, with a but. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, speaking purely as an American, you know, I, I'd rather have it this way over here than that way over there. And um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's it's a shame. I hate seeing pieces of firearms history and military history uh, being destroyed due to the idiosyncrasies of the law, you know, you know, and it's, it becomes a problem with it. You know, the Springfield Armory National Historic Site, you know, they, they've only got so much storage space, you know, they, they don't need 300 M3 grease guns, you know, and, and so it, it does become a bit of a conundrum, but then on the flip side to that, you know, I, I, as a private firearms owner, I do enjoy being able to, purchase a firearm with relative ease within all of the constraints, the legal constraints of the law, you know, being able to have that private ownership. Um, but again, mm. it's, it's a toss up and, and I have friends and coworkers who fall on, on both sides of the spectrum with that. Uh, and, and I don't think in terms of the museum aspect of it, I, I don't necessarily know that one is better than the other. It's just that they are decidedly different. With your position working in the museum, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about something that you'd mentioned, you know, talk about firing some of the guns uh, in, in the collection. And you guys have a, a relatively unique collection uh, in terms of firearms museums and the way they're set up. And you've had the opportunity, I'm sure, to shoot some of the most remarkable uh, pieces of, of history. And I'm curious to know what are, you know, what are some of the really unique things that you've shot? What have you enjoyed shooting most? Um, and and how does it work over there with you having access to these firearms and being able to shoot them uh, in a professional and museum related uh, application? Yeah, I mean it's the whole the whole job is a massive privilege, um, and to be able to occasionally, with good reason, um, get involved in, in shooting anything, frankly, is. Um, is great, you know. I, I I jump at the chance whenever it comes up, whether it's um, uh, someone inviting me to a guest day, uh, shooting things that people, the individuals can own, um, or whether it's doing research or filming a documentary and firing something um, on the job, as it were. I mean, you you cannot, you know, you cannot. I, I never, for one moment, take take any of that for granted. Every every day I walk in, I. I thank my lucky stars just for being there never mind for being able to do that but that that said yeah and it's a weird situation because it means that myself and a few other people with with um, um 
usually access through their through their employment um or they are military or affiliated there are relatively few people in the uk with that privileged position that they occasionally get to shoot things that as you say most people in the uk don't get the opportunity to shoot uh, even things that most people in the states don't get to shoot um weird thing I, I kind of rocket straight through the barrier of what's legal in the uk to what's not what's unobtainium almost anywhere else um and and you know we needless to say anything that we do shoot that's that's super rare it's because we have more than one of them um we have, we have carefully assessed them there is a very good reason to do so and so that's rare uh, don't get me wrong but it does mean that um so for the thing that pop, pops into my mind was uh, so we're working on on something related to our it's a very small display for um for our second world war offer as it were it's it's a corner of the upstairs of our war gallery but hopefully it punches above its weight uh, and in researching for that i um looked into the um and actually <laughs> didn't end up featuring uh, but in in terms of informing the research around the the STG um, Sturmgewehr I did actually get to shoot an MKB 42H uh, which is which having fired a Sturmgewehr um, uh, 44 it was it's going to sound very obvious but it was oddly different so <laughs> you know there's like a um, it's open bolt so there's a bit of a stem gun style kachunk going on but because the big the big return spring it's it's almost like half half sten gun half ar15 or like that's the, only, that's the only way you can really fully get to grips you know you can do you can do almost everything from the desk from from the collection statically but in terms of the there there is an added value to to being able to shoot something for yourself and obviously if it's only like 10 rounds or whatever it was that i was able to to put through that then that's limited um, uh, yeah, still, still great. Um, for my for the Mauser Broomhandle book, which was a you know, relatively accessible kind of introduction to the to the type. You know, I will I will never be a, a true specialist in the in the C ninety six, but I thought I I will not be able to, especially because I can't I can't do it in my in my own private sphere, as it were. I thought I've got to take a, um, take advantage of the ability to shoot some um, Brumadal pistols. So uh, we we prepared a, f a few that um, we're not going to sort of suffer from the process. And I put about 200 rounds through uh, different types. And so uh, for someone in my position, otherwise that that's a perspective you're just not going to get unless you go and spend a week uh, in, in a foreign country where you, where you can do such a thing, um, including the, the Schnellfeuer. So... You know, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of people in the US who have fired a Chanel fire, but that, that's quite an experience. I, I'm actually I'm actually uh, sad enough to keep a list of what I do shoot, whether that's over in the states, which I and I try and get over whenever I can. <laughs> so uh, the current situation, first world problem, of course, but the current situation means I haven't been for uh, over a year, so I am getting withdrawal symptoms there. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think, well, the uh, highlight that um, some people who, who got involved in pre-ordering my book might have seen was we prepared an EM2 for firing, and, and I put a 
we put a significant number of rounds through an EM2. Um, that, I mean, that is, is something that's rare as hell, you know, in terms, in terms of firing at the opportunities are, are, are relatively limited and the historical significance of it. But on, on my, my list still to shoot is the 280 because this was a 7.62 gun. So yeah, I, I could go on. The, the the Thompson 1921 model Thompson one of the one of the first things I was able to shoot um, this was a piece that had been used for firing um, when it was in, in um, MOD pattern room hands so it was it was again deemed appropriate that we could shoot this uh, but it's one of two that had Irish uh, provenance um, so that one had been kept in running order by swapping parts so it was a bit less original. But as far as I know, it was still original as to when it came out of um, terrorist hands some years ago, shall we say. But um, that, again, an iconic historic piece of not only American history, but world history. So, And, and, and that's, that's a funny one in a way, because var variants of the Thompson are relatively available over there, of course. Your class threes are, are less so, as you say, and, and, and a 21 rather than a 28, you know, that's just... Yeah, that's bucket list stuff. So, yeah, that was amazing too. Yeah, and you had mentioned uh, the EM2, which is a nice segue into the next thing I'd like to talk about, which is your your forthcoming book from Headstamp Publishing, which is still available for pre-order, uh, that focuses on the concept of bullpup firearms and their history covering well, uh, 119 years in, in the book, which is uh, quite, a, quite an accomplishment and quite a feat. Um, but before you can really delve into the content of the book, um, for those who might not know, can you explain what is a bullpup firearm? Yes, this <laughs> this was something that uh, I had to tackle. You, you know, you know, people who know guns know what a bullpup is almost intuitively at this point. Um, bits of bits of the gun are behind other bits that that, it, that they ought not to be, according to some lines of thinking um and and you know i've seen various definitions often the magazines involved in that because it's you know it's obviously where the ammunition is feeding from so it makes sense that it's it's a gun that the magazine goes behind the, the trigger well but well is it you know you've got things like the g11 where the magazine's sticking up the top forwards so that the magazine was quickly discounted i i ended up going uh, partly because I've done um, a fair bit of work with Armament, Armament Research Services who have done some, some great stuff on definitions. I was even more in the mindset of, right, we're gonna, we, we are going to nail the definition of what is a bullpup. So hopefully people that, that see my definition will, uh, will agree with me. Um, I don't have it to hand, but it's essentially that the, the grip is in front of the breech face. Yeah, and you know, and even though that is, you know, the the simplest way to explain it, even even when you break it down into those simplest of terms, there are some people who still stop and go, wait, 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 what? <laughs> I know, I know. And then we we've ha I've had to try and define around that with a, with a uh, a note at the at the end of the chapter that explains that by grip we mean this because, and and you what you find when you look into this is there are so many marginal designs. Um, I mean, a good, a good example of, well, thinking about it, most pistols could, a lot of self-loading pistols and uh, some revolvers could fall into, accidentally into the category of bullpup, depending on how you define a firearm. So do you define those out and shoulder arms? Well, 
we decided not to. Um, so it's the problem then becomes what's the grip? You know, is it is it the is it fifty one percent of the contact point of a pistol grip? What about the you know if it's a wrist like a like a shotgun grip or or a semi pistol grip? What? Well, there's only one way to find out, and you know that'll be once the book comes out and people read it, and and then you start getting uh, getting those emails and letters of people questioning uh, what's going on here, right? Well, you will find uh, there is a forgotten weapons video where Ian asks me this question, and uh, there's a bit bit more detail there about about the argument. I haven't dared go back and look at the comments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's just it. You know, uh, wise to stay away from the comments, right? You know, a uh, wise YouTuber doesn't go looking trying to pick a fight in the comments, you know? Yeah, I'm probably wrong, <laughs> even if I'm wrong. Yeah, you know, and, and that's just it. There is always someone behind a keyboard who's willing to argue, uh, no matter how many concessions you make, given uh, one way or the other. You just you, you can't please everyone. You know, one person a day, today is not your day, and tomorrow doesn't look good either, right? <laughs> now, let's talk about the concept of a book about bullpup firearms. It's quite the departure from your previous book, you know, that focused on the broom handle Mauser. Uh, and we're looking at, you know, just one type of firearm and it's, uh, you know, and it's a very well-known type of firearm. And, and then we're going into a broad, you know, more than century of history of a, a, a type of firearm as opposed to just one individual gun. And, and a type of firearm that uh, by many people isn't nearly as well-known. Uh, so I'm curious, what was, what was the impetus behind choosing bullpup firearms as the topic for this book? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I, I've been quite reactive to, uh, in my career so far, part, partly because doing the museum day job doesn't always leave that much time for research. And so a lot of that ends up getting in, in spare time. And you often don't come up for air to kind of plan what you might want to research into. And, you know, in, in museums, it's often driven by exhibitions and displays, inquiries that you're you're trying to help with, that kind of thing. But I quite enjoy that, you know, stuff that, that pops up and then you run with it and you go down the rabbit hole. So in this case, I've mentioned um, Ares and Forgotten Weapons, and it was a collaboration between those two to create a series of videos on um, the EM1s, the EM2, the SA80 series, uh, back in 2017 that prompted this because I was asked to produce a series of accompanying uh, blogs. So for perhaps a, a, a deeper dive, even than Ian was, was capable of doing in 20 minutes or whatever. And those went up, but of course, YouTube being YouTube, um, how many people read the description? Never mind, a, uh, click a link through to, <laughs> to a blog post. And I, as, I often, as I often do, I kind of went, a bit over the top and wrote way more than than we planned. And so um, Nick Jensen Jones at Aries suggested, uh, and you know, luckily in parallel, that he and, and Ian and James Ripley were, were looking at founding this publishing company, Headstamp Publishing. And so that seemed like a good um, second title. Um, so Ian's uh, Chaspo to Famas book would would come out first, and did I want to do the second one in the series? And of course, yes, I did. So, 
starting from I think it was thirty-seven thousand words, um, compiling the blog posts just as a as a starting point. I am now at so it'll be I think I'm right in saying about one hundred and eighty thousand words and like six hundred pages currently. Uh, I'm, I'm fully expecting to be to be edited at any point, but at the moment we're nearly process and i seem to have sneaked through with something that you could you know probably prop up the corner of your house with so and you know i i think most people who are in the market for your book uh you know are really interested in that deep dive that they can take into the concept and you know what whether it's your book or it's ian's just photo famas or it's you know anything that you know collector grade publications or, or mowbray publishing had come out with you know we really want that book that is kind of a you know a, a one-stop shop uh, of all the information you could ever want. You know, I'd much rather be in a situation where I'm going, my gosh, my, my eyes are glazing over. I've got to stop back. Uh, got to step back. This is kind of an information overload instead of finding myself going, well, this didn't answer my question. In fact, uh, now I've got more questions and I've, now I gotta go look for another book and another source because this didn't help. Um, you know, not to say that uh, I, I don't like having an excuse to buy more books. Uh, more is always better. Um, but there is something to say for having an authoritative and definitive volume, uh, such as what you're hoping to put out. Um, and really looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. Um, I, I know at the time of this recording, it's it's still in the publication process. But do you guys have a, a time frame uh, for the release date for the book yet? Yeah, um, I think the the Kickstarter official delivery date is February, I believe. Okay, February, February twenty twenty one. Well, that's that's not too far off here uh, for those who are listening around the time when this is recorded. Uh, but at any rate, it, it'll certainly be worth the wait. That's for sure. As we wrap up the interview here, I want to ask you a question that is by far uh, the the most important question that we will touch on in this entire mm. interview. And that is, if you could meet any firearms designer, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, there are, well, <laughs> there are a few. And I think I'm, I'm going to go with something a little, uh, a little more antique because I've, I've, spoke, I've spoken a lot about more modern stuff. Um, but what... Names that first came to mind, firstly, was uh, Ezekiel Baker, uh, who, of course, celebrated for the rifle that ended up with his name, even though that wasn't the official name. And yeah, one, one of the things I grew up uh, loving and helped get me into this world were the Sean Bean Sharp um, movies, effectively, TV movies. And so I knew what a Baker rifle was, um, probably before that to be fair but uh you know it was a, it was the unsung hero of, of that and and the more and, and i've never i've never done any formal research into into baker but maybe that's why I, I would particularly like to just meet him over a flagon of something and um hear what he had to say i mean luckily you can read his his book uh, on the right and his thoughts on what makes a, a suitable rifle for uh, primarily for military purposes but also for the civilian, because he was he was one of these sort of gentleman designers that we celebrate from the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. But he was he was doing it end of the uh, end of the eighteenth, beginning of the nineteenth. Um, 
and was involved in in much more than just the Baker rifle. You know, he was um, prior to um, Lovell, who de- developed the British percussion series of of arms that that succeeded it. Baker was involved in um, some really important um, general issue weapons, not because, of course, the Baker rifle was a specialist weapon, essentially. So he'd, he'd be very interesting, I'm sure. And he has a, a um, one of the coolest names in firearms history, I think. Um, <laughs> and I, I probably have to, if I can throw in a bonus, I probably have to throw in my namesake, Patrick Ferguson, who, who uh, just, just yeah, people often say, any relation? No, sadly not. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we have um one of his rifles in the collection it's on display at, at, at leeds and uh, he's a fascinating character and and of course because i i love i love um the states and i'm british uh it's a nice connection between the two the two countries albeit it's it's uh you know in the context of warfare against uh, between the two uh, nations effectively <laughs> I love both of those answers and, you know, choosing a couple more obscure designers is the sign of someone who really enjoys researching and diving deep and exploring the more obscure names, uh, you know, because the, the very easy answer to that, you know, would have been something like John Moses Browning or Sam Colt. Um, but instead, you know, going a bit more obscure, I, I think that's great. Those are both fantastic answers. I mean, you know, and I, I'd love to meet Ferguson and, and Baker myself. And of course, I've, I'd also like to meet uh, Colton Browning too, but uh, solid choices all, most definitely. I think we need an honorable mention for Sir Hiram Maxim as well, because <laughs> you mentioned Colt. And of course, I'd, I'd be in the queue to meet all of these guys um, and Stoner and Kalashnikov. And, you know, I've been able, I've been fortunate to meet a, a couple of, of designers, but the, the, the ones that are on the top of everyone's list. You know they they've passed away uh, too too soon um, for, for that to be a realistic prospect. You know I, I know I know guys that meet Kalashnikov who met Stoner, uh, but yeah. So so the if we if we're going if we're shooting for the moon, then you, you mentioned Colt. He's he's a of course a fascinating character, and he bridges the the as well in with the factory in London um, and. Uh, and that, that wonderful set I think I showed at, at the symposium of um, presentation Navy, 61 navies that he gave to uh, Mark Firth at Sheffield that we have in, uh, which have gone on display now, I'm pleased to say, finally, which is really cool. So Colt would be on there as well. But another, he, of course, was a, was a big showman and a marketeer as much as a, um, poss- arguably even more than he was a designer. He had a lot of talented people working for him. And I think Matt, Situation is probably the same with Maxim, um, and I, I, I probably get thrown out of the of the house for asking searching questions about, you know, who who did the actual design work on on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would uh, it would depend on how many drinks deep we were. I mean, because let's be honest, if we're having dinner with these guys, we're also going to be having a few drinks with these guys, and uh, depending on how loose everyone's feeling, it might might uh, determine whether or not we get an answer or if we uh, get booted out the door. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's probably a good place to to wrap up uh, discussing who we would love to meet and then uh, the possibility of insulting a fantastic designer. I think that's a, a great place for us to stop. Let's let's quit while we're ahead. Right. Uh, so, Jonathan, I, I really appreciate you coming on the High Caliber History podcast. Appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us here and, and chat with us about some some really cool stuff. Um, hopefully we can have you back. Um, uh, but again, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. No problem at all. Absolute pleasure. If you're curious to know more about the Royal Armories, you can visit them online at royalarmories.org. But remember, uh, they are British, so Armories has a U in it. Uh, I will put a link to the website below. There will also be links to their social media accounts uh, and links to how you can help support the organization because like everything during COVID, uh, the museum was shut down and, and they were hurting, so they would appreciate the extra support. So I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I appreciate you tuning in. Before you go, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Leave a comment, uh, leave a rating, give us a review, and share it with someone who you think might like it. Again, I really appreciate you tuning in to this episode with Jonathan Ferguson. Uh, that's all for now. I hope you have a great day, and I'll talk to you again real soon. <laughs>